Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, Matt Lewis! With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello, that was a good one, wasn't it? It was a good one, yeah. <laughs> uh, and welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the Queen and Prince consorts of England, from Elswith to Prince Philip. Uh, today, however, we are not reviewing a consort, but rather we are interviewing the historian Matt Lewis, who is the chair of the Richard III Society. So, chance for us to revisit Richard III and uh, potentially get a different perspective on him. Boom. Yeah, I... Um, oh, this is the beginning bit, isn't it? <laughs> yes, we are just oh. about to record oh, the interview, yeah. Ali. Okay, right. We have no thoughts oh. on that. Okay, I hope it's good. Uh, so, we are very excited to be joined on the podcast today by the historian Matt Lewis. Matt, thanks very much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I am completely here fanboying. Rex Factor was the first podcast I ever subscribed to and listened to from beginning really? to end. And uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely love it. Love the format, love you guys. Brilliant. Oh, Magic. Thank you very much. Uh, would you mind just introducing yourself um, in terms of who you are and what you do for listeners? I am Matt Lewis. I have written several books, mainly focused on the Wars of the Roses. Um, and my main passion within that is Richard III and the Princes in the Tower. So I'm currently chair of the Richard III Society. I've written a biography of Richard III. I've written a biography of his father. Um, and I've also gone a little bit further back in the Plantagenets as well to... Um, Henry the Second and Eleanor of Aquitaine and Henry the Third and things like that. So, um, quite comfortable all around the medieval period, but very much at home with Richard the Third, which makes me unpopular in lots of quarters. But I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is so. Th- this you are you are Mister Richard the Third. I, I, if you like, I can be Mister Richard the Third. <laughs> That's a that's a more succinct Twitter bio. <laughs> I'll, I'll change it now. I'm going to change it now. <laughs> so, and I don't mean this in a, a nasty way, but I guess the first question then would be, why Richard III? What sort of drew you to him? Um, my interest really started with A-level history. And a brilliant teacher, I mean, you know, how many people get into history because you have a, a fantastic teacher? Um, I did GCSE history mostly World War One and World War Two. just didn't really enjoy it very much, found it a bit boring, but got to A-level and had an absolutely fantastic teacher. We did the Wars of the Roses. Um, and I always say that I have a sneaking suspicion she may have been a closet Ricardian. I'm not 100% sure. She never she never outed herself to us. But when we got to the Richard III part of the Wars of the Roses, she sort of stopped and said, you know, from now on, in you need to think about the sources that you're reading, who's writing them, when they're writing them, why they're writing them. And I think that fascination has just always stuck with me. I mean, I'm still obsessed with the whole of the Wars of the Roses, but in particular, Richard III and that idea. And I, and I think I've always stuck to that thing that she taught about looking at the sources that you're reading, go as far back, as close to the original source material as you can, but think about who is writing it, why are they writing it? What do they want you to understand from what they're, they're writing? What is the message they're getting across? And I think Richard III is one of those things that you, you either study him more and more and think he's more and more of a monster, or you study him more and more and think, how can people think this guy is a monster? And I guess I've gone down the second route. <laughs> 
And essentially, because obviously the that sort of message of being careful about who's saying it and why they're saying it, etc., is just kind of good history studying knowledge that applies anywhere. But it seems particularly that, like you said, when you get to Richard III, that that's the thing that everyone starts saying. So looking at books on Amazon and the reviews and how many of them will say, oh, you've got to be careful with this one because this guy is either really pro-Ricardian or this guy absolutely hates Richard. And there's even... It doesn't seem to apply to other, at least in sort of royal history, other periods. So why do you think it's somehow so pertinent with Richard? It is incredibly polarising and absolutely, you know, it's just good historical practice to think about the sources that you're using everywhere. Um, I think the problem with Richard is that that period at the end of the Wars of the Roses is so poorly documented that there are so few of those sources to go back to and to look at and consider reliable. So we we hit this kind of vacuum between the tailing off of all the big monastic chroniclers who have kept us going through all the, you know, from the conquest onwards, all of those monks sitting there writing about how awful women are and how <laughs> everything that happens in the world is because God hates us and we've all done something wrong. That kind of tails off as we get to the 15th century and we've not yet got that big Cromwellian behemoth of Henry VIII's civil service grinding into action and recording every single thing that the government does. And there's just this big black hole. You get a, a few citizen chroniclers, people like Gregory and Walkworth are, are writing around this time. But otherwise we have such limited sources. And because Richard, in particular, Richard III's reign is so short, so much of what we get is written after the Battle of Bosworth, you know, quite a, quite a bit of it soon after, 1486, 1487, into the 1490s, relatively contemporaneous but we've had a massive dynastic change which affects everybody's view of everything so I think one of the big problems is that you and I could read exactly the same piece of original source material and take away two completely different things from it one of us could see a monster in it and one of us would see a man doing what he thought was the right thing in it there's just such a a wide gap into which we can pour our own interpretations that you can never quite get a right or a wrong answer to some of these things. Yeah, because I found it quite interesting having done um, the research for Anne Neville, Richard's um, wife, and like John Rouse is one of the chroniclers who's got some of the most um, colourful descriptions of Richard that I think we may have may have quoted in our animated show um, just because it was so extreme. Um, but I found it quite interesting finding that actually he was kind of originally sort of a chronicler of like the Neville family and the Earls of Warwick. And so his perspective before he has to rewrite it for the Tudors was kind of very much sort of Anne Neville's family and her mother and that sort of stuff. So his angle was slanted in that very particular way. And it's there's so many, like no writer comes from it completely neutral. No, and, and Rouse is a particularly interesting source because, as you say, he's a chronicler of the, the Neville family. Well, he's actually a chronicler of the Earls of Warwick. So mm. Warwick the Kingmaker sort of brings that into the, the Neville fold. Both his daughters, Isabella and Anne, end up married to York brothers. So George, Duke of Clarence for Isabella. And her sister Anne is married to George's brother, Richard, then Duke of Gloucester, later Richard III. And while while... Richard III is alive. So in 1484, Rouse writes this huge passage about how great Richard is. He's one of the best princes the world has ever known. He's the most amazing, kind, generous man you've ever met in your life. And then you get the Battle of Bosworth the next year and Rouse is literally scurrying around the countryside, collecting up copies of his manuscript, thinking, (laughs) oh my God, I don't want this out there anymore. I can't have said this. 
And he rewrites it all in fashionable, shiny Latin and talks about what a terrible monster Richard was. And this is where you get that, possibly the passage that you've quoted about him being retained in his mother's Mm. womb for two Mm. years and born with shoulder-length hair and a full set of teeth and sharp fingernails ready to claw at the world and all of this sort of stuff. Very much the Shakespearean image of Richard as this, Mm. you know, born to be a monster. So even in Rouse, in the space of a couple of years, you've got this absolute reversal of his opinion of Richard. Obviously, you're going to say nice things about the king while he's alive because you want to keep your head on your shoulders. But as soon as he's gone, because it's a dynastic change, you don't have to worry then about talking about the king's father or the king's uncle Mm. or the king's brother. Actually, the king is quite happy for you to slate the guy who went before because it makes him look even better. So Rouse is a really good example of exactly the kind of problems we have with with this source material. I mean, Rouse is the only one, the only contemporary source that ever talked about Richard having uneven shoulders. So that was always written off because we we had the x-ray examinations of portraiture which showed that the the lump on Richard's shoulder had been added later on so it was generally thought that this was was wrong and that's because Rouse ties it up with all of this nonsense about being retained for 2 years in the womb born with you know so it's not unreasonable to have discounted the oh when he had mm-hmm. uneven shoulders thing as well because it was mixed in with all of this what is obviously nonsense and and what we know is now not true. But it's interesting that Rouse did say that Mm -hmm. um, and obviously did know that, um, quite possibly only came into the public domain after Bosworth when Richard's body is is stripped and and displayed and everyone would have been able to see this scoliosis that you imagine he would have done a pretty good job of hiding while he was alive. So, so yeah, you know, Rouse is a really good example of the, the really deep problems that we have with source material for Richard III. And I think you put in the book about how one of the myths is almost the Tudor myth, because obviously there's lots of very sort of strong Tudor historians writing about him, but that actually, like with Rouse, I think it wasn't that Henry VII brought him to court and said, right, I need you to do a character assassination of Richard III. That's kind of him off his own back thinking, oh, I need to try and cover my tracks here so it's not necessarily that the Tudors had this orchestrated campaign to blacken his name it just sort of no I think obviously Richard III being bad and the country needing to be saved from him is part of the Tudor foundation myth Mm. but it's not necessarily one that you find Tudor monarchs actively pursuing so you don't see Henry VII as you say you don't see Henry VII engaging people and saying I want this guy written as the biggest monster who ever lived um Quite often people will talk about people like Thomas More and Shakespeare, you know, being Tudor propagandists. So I don't think they were. I think what we miss, there's there's a nice quote from C.S. Lewis where he says, rhetoric is the greatest barrier between us and understanding our forebears. Because we forget that people used to write in rhetoric. They didn't write literal history in the way that, you know, if I write a non-fiction book today... I would like to think it's facts that are well-researched and presented for an audience to read it and try and understand the subject better. For people like Thomas More, writing history was a, it was a branch of rhetoric. You write in allegory. It's about delivering political messages and warnings. So Richard III becomes a great character to wrap up as a tyrant. And for my money, Thomas More, in his history of Richard III, is delivering lessons and warnings about tyranny for the young Henry VIII, who has come to the throne just before Moore starts writing, executing people like Empson and Dudley, you know, behaving really badly just to get himself popular. And I think Moore uses Richard as a convenient villain 
to, to deliver a political message. And because we forget that and we think that people like Moore are writing literal non-fiction history in the way that we would write it today, we we misinterpret it. You know, I think I think Moore and Shakespeare, if we got them on this call and said, you guys, you know, your work has been accepted as the history of Richard III for four odd centuries now, I think they'd be absolutely horrified. I don't think it's ever what they meant to do. Mm. <laughs> That's fascinating. Well, uh, I suppose if you want to um, uh, make a lie really good, you mix in a bit of truth. So even if some of it's discovered, you're like, well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> That's all the best back. lies. All the best lies are based on a kernel of truth. And I mean, I have a... I, I wonder, I don't even know if it's a theory, but I wonder whether James Tyrrell getting involved as the murder of the princes is related to the fact that there are myths and legends of the kind that you can never prove, these kind of verbal family stories in the Tyrrell family, that James Tyrrell was involved in hosting the princes in the tower at his manor at Gipping Hall when they used to meet with their mother during Richard III's reign. So we have lots of evidence of James Tyrrell gets sent to the continent during Richard III's reign with enough money, more than a a year's income from the, the English treasury, and he's sent abroad with it for no apparent reason. We don't know what that money is for. So I might suggest that that's because one of the, the maybe the younger of the princes in the tower is going over to the continent, and that's to help provide for him at the court maybe of Margaret of Burgundy, Richard's sister. We just don't know. But if you're going to make up a lie, it's always great to have a little bit of truth at the middle of it. So is the story that James Tyrrell was involved in the murder of the princes built around this kernel of truth that actually he was involved in their continued survival? Mm. Oh my goodness! <laughs> <laughs> this I feel like I'm I'm uh, and I mean nothing by this, but I've, I've had some sort of conspiracy theory QAnon moment where I'm like, "Holy moly, Graham, we've got to go back and have a look at this." <laughs> Prepare to be indoctrinated. <laughs> but. That is absolutely fascinating because I hadn't thought. I, of course, there's going to be an information black hole uh, because there's just been a civil war. So, and even if the information that you're getting is is someone's sort of legacy because it's not a tweet, it it it's their a political statement, as you're saying. There's so much room for ambiguity. Oh, what chaos! It's like the Dark Ages, with uh, information-wise. And so, yeah, Henry VIII coming later can just, or Henry VII rather, can just fill it all in. There is, And because Richard is the end of his line, you don't have to worry about his son. There's no one to offend. Yeah. There's no one to upset. He's fair game. You know, no one is going to come rushing to Richard's protection yeah. if you start slating him and, and saying he did this and he was, you know, a wicked monster. Because... The one thing about the Tudors, you know, I don't believe in this huge Tudor propaganda machine against Richard III, but they did need Richard to be the bad guy yeah. so that Henry VII could be the good guy who had justification in invading the country and taking the throne because you shouldn't be taking, surely you're not going to want to broadcast the fact that you've usurped the throne from a good guy. You know, mm. He was a brilliant king, but I kicked him off and killed him anyway. That's yeah. not a good look, is it? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And I mean, I, you know, I have... So, my, I mean, my theory about the Yorkist backing for Henry Tudor at Bosworth, if you look at what Richard III does throughout his life, so when I wrote my biography of him, 
it's a, it's a great big doorstep of a book. You know, if you're too short to reach kitchen cupboards, it's great. If you don't want to read it, it'll help you reach kitchen cupboards. But half of that book is about before 1483, because Richard is a 30-year-old man when he arrives on the throne of England. He doesn't just spring up in 1483, desperate to take the throne and kill some children and whatever else. (laughs) And we know what he's doing for the previous 30 years of his life. So if you look at what he's interested in, there is so much stuff around kind of anti-corruption, championing the common man against the, the status quo. Lots of examples of him taking the part of those lower down the social scale in court cases and things like that. And I think he continues this as king. So we have evidence that he was doing this. We have letters that he writes as king, the activities of his parliament in particular. You know, there's reforms to bail laws and things like that that favour the common man. But every time that you do that, you're necessarily removing power from the powerful. And I mean, one thing that doesn't change in the world is the powerful don't like having their power taken away. There are, you know, one of the things that Richard rails against is the corruption of his brother's reign. And I think that's genuinely what he believes, something that he genuinely sees and feels is wrong. And he sets about correcting this corruption. And then all the people that go over to Henry Tudor's court in in Brittany and then move to France are that layer of gentry who benefit from that local level of corruption that Richard is trying to deal with. It's not the dukes and the earls that are piling across the seas. It's that layer of local shire knights and gentry who had actually been getting quite rich off all of this corruption. But they can't, they can't go to the Battle of Bosworth and say, I'm here to fight for my right to be corrupt and to, to <laughs> screw the little man out of every penny that he's got. I, I very seriously doubt that anybody or very few people on the field of the Battle of Bosworth in August 1485 are genuinely worried about what happened to Edward IV's sons. I think that is a nice, convenient, chivalric cloak that you can throw over your motives later. Because you can't go saying, you know, I, I went into battle for my right to be corrupt. You can say I went into battle for to avenge these two boys who were murdered by this evil monster. So I think there's just so much going on that you have to be aware of in such a short period of time. It's just so condensed and difficult to get through. Mm. So if we go to Richard and his his sort of early years, and obviously that's so important in when you look at what happens in 1483, well, and up to possible as well, his reign, that sort of last couple of years, which is where all the focus is for him. Um, how much do we know of his sort of his childhood and his upbringing? Or is it really all just sort of once the Wars of the Roses kicks off that that's when he really is formed? I think it's difficult to separate Richard's life from the Wars of the Roses. He's born October, 2nd of October, 1452, as his father is moving into opposition to Henry VI. So he's kind of born right on the cusp of the Wars of the Roses, almost born into civil war, if you like. We know for the first few years of his life, he's brought up at the family seat at Fotheringay Castle in Northampton, where he's born. And he shares the nursery space there with with Margaret, who goes on to be Duchess of Burgundy, and with George, who is later Duke of Clarence, his two the two siblings that are nearest to him in age. His two oldest brothers are already off at, at Ludlow, learning how to be lords and, and knights and all of that sort of stuff. And a couple of his sisters are already married as well uh, and off in their own households and things. But really, we, we see him move into the record proper uh, kind of around 1459. So as a seven-year-old, he passes his seventh birthday at Ludlow on the Welsh marches about 10 days before the Battle of Ludford Bridge in the same place. 
So his father's brought them there because it's a much more defensible fortress than Fotheringay because he's he's now in opposition to Henry VI. He's raising an army against Henry VI. And you get the Battle of Ludford Bridge um, in October 1459. And as part of this, all the Yorkist lords kind of flee. So York and his second son, Edmund, get to Ireland. His oldest son, Edward, goes with uh, the two Richard Neville's father and son, the Earls of Salisbury and Warwick, because everyone has to share a name just to make it (laughs) all the more complicated. Um, But they leave behind his wife, Cecily Neville. And I think that's about her keeping a foot in the door to try and negotiate uh, a possibility of return for York and her other sons. So they leave behind Cecily, but they also leave behind Margaret, George and Richard. So this seven-year-old boy, he's, he's just past his seventh birthday, 10 days earlier, watching his father gather an army. You know, how exciting must that be for a six, seven-year-old to watch all of these men pile in, thousands upon thousands of men cramming in clanking armour, people practising with swords, all of the noise and bustle and excitement. And, and 10 days after his birthday, he's abandoned by all the adult men in his life. His dad, his two oldest brothers, his uncle and his cousin just disappear in the night and they leave him. The Lancastrian army, Henry VI army, kind of ransacks Ludlow. Uh, the sources describe the castle being robbed to the bare walls. And he's a seven-year-old boy in the middle of this. There's, there's royal soldiers running through the streets of Ludlow, stealing anything movable. They steal everybody's bed sheets, all the wine, all the beer. You know, they're all drunk, misbehaving. In the, I mean, there's talk of them raping women all through the town and all sorts of stuff like that. It's a seven-year-old boy in the middle of all of this. I, I think possibly we can see the reasoning why... York may have left them behind, but that must, must have been hard for a seven-year-old boy to see. So by the end of 1460, they, they, he then spends most of the next year as a, a prisoner, effectively, uh, in house arrest in his aunt's household, the Duchess of Buckingham. And then his dad gets killed at Wakefield in December 1460, so he's just eight years old. Now his dad and his second oldest brother, Edmund, are killed at the Battle of Wakefield. And you get this um, Lancastrian army sort of moving south towards London and Richard and George and their mama are in London at this point. And things have obviously changed so much. I mean, we've we've gone from the idea of chivalric warfare to people having their heads chopped off after they're dead and spiked on walls with paper crowns stuck mm-hmm. on them and all of this kind of thing. So for the end of 1459, they obviously felt comfortable leaving a woman and children behind and they thought they would be safe with an enemy army. There's a degree of chivalry expected mm. there. By the end of 1460, that seems to have utterly vanished, and Cecily Neville is now terrified for her son. So what she does in, in the early months of 1461, as that army is approaching, she puts George and Richard, and Richard's still just an eight-year-old, she puts them in a small boat with a few servants and shoves them off out into the channel. And they end up in Burgundy, Nobody knows whether they're going to find a a good reception there. The Duke of Burgundy decides he doesn't actually know what to do with them, so just dumps them in a corner of his realm, far away from his court, and sort of ignores them. I mean, that must be pretty terrifying for an eight-year-old boy. Hmm. And then within a few months of that, we get the Battle of Towton, huge decisive victory for Edward IV. And all of a sudden, George and Richard are, are whisked off to the court of the Duke of Burgundy and told, your brother is now King of England. Now, Now I want to talk to you guys. He wants you back for his coronation. Richard is now third in line to the throne of England. So second in line, sorry. So George would be first in line after Edward, who's got no children at this point. And then Richard. So he's gone from 
being, you know, excited young boy at Ludlow to being a political prisoner kind of thing, to being sent out into exile, to suddenly being the king's brother, second in line to the throne, and all of this before he's nine years old. That's got to have had a massive impact on on who he was and and the, the adult that he grew into. But, you know, then through the, the 1470s, I mean, we see the re-adeption. So when Henry VI comes back to the throne briefly, Richard sticks with Edward, despite the fact that George, the brother who he's probably closest to, goes onto Warwick's side. So there must have been something really difficult about that for Richard. Which brother do you choose? Mm. He's got a brother on either side here, the one he's closest to or the oldest one who's king. Who are you going to choose? You know, Choose your favourite child kind of moment, really, isn't it? Mm. Um, and then through the 1470s, he ends up as Lord of the North for Richard, effect, uh, for Edward IV, sorry, running the north of England for Edward. And that's where we start to see all of this interest in um, championing the cause of the the little guy. And maybe that's because of the the upbringing, the experiences that he's had. He's been tossed around at the hands of the great men. Maybe he wants to to focus on those who don't have power. He's been in a position of not having power and being at the mercy of everybody else. Perhaps that affects his view of the lot of the common man. You know, we have this this odd incident as a really good example. He he gets really interested in fish garths, which are, are blockages in the river designed to help catch fish. And they're normally put up by the wealthy. So earls will put them up, monasteries will put them up, uh, and it's sort of a mass fishing enterprise. But what it actually does is it makes the river impossible to navigate by boat, and it lessens the catch that's available to ordinary people further down the river. So Richard bans them on his land. He orders them all taken out of every part of his land and then tells all of the other lords in the north that they have to do the same thing. And he goes to when they when they fight against this, he goes to his brother Edward and gets a royal decree saying, Yes, you have to do what Richard says and get rid of all these fish garths. And that's a good example of who is he annoying there? He's annoying everybody with power, with land, with the the, the money to set up one of these fish garths. He's upsetting the powerful to make it better and easier for the little guy. I love and I think he no, he carries that on. <laughs> he carries that on as king. I think we can demonstrate. As I say, Parliament is a really good place. He de- he continues all of this as king. And I think it's one thing if you're the king's baby brother, you know, playing around in the north of England where nobody really cares what goes on up there. You know, it's grim up north and no- nobody's really interested. But actually, as soon as you become king and you try and do all of this stuff on the national stage, well, hang on, that's a problem now. We don't like this anymore. And I think that's why you get people turning against <clears throat> Richard. Well, well, that's part one of the film. <laughs> How much do we need to get that bit made? Blimey, I was somewhere else for that. That's brilliant. But it's the sort of the fact that he seems to be always, which is odd given his high status throughout his life, you know, even before Edward IV becomes king, he's still, you know, a son of an incredibly powerful duke. But he somehow always seems to be an outsider. So like I said, as the young boy, he's not part of that sort of 1460, 1461, you know, Edward IV obviously is part of that, even before his father dies, he's involved in all of that, whereas Richard is a child, he's out of the way, he's in exile or captivity, and then he's still very young for much of Edward's reign, and then when Edward is king, after the re-adeption, Richard's off in the north. It sort of seems like he's never actually kind of part of the clique at court, and that's not just a Woodfield thing, which you can talk about, but generally he always seems somehow to be away from everything that's going yeah, on. Yeah, and I, I, I'd never think that is particularly 
a conscious effort that Richard makes to stay mm. away from things. I, I mean, you have to wonder how much his scoliosis would have made him feel like an outsider. Um, you know, there, there's this view at the time that physical problems like that are kind of the manifestation of a corrupt soul. So that may be why he hides it and nobody knows about it because he doesn't want this on display because he would worry what other people would think about him. But you also have to think, what does this make Richard think about himself? Does he have to be even better to prove to God that he isn't the monster his body might suggest that he is? I mean, I'm talking about medieval beliefs here, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so does that affect, because we see his religion for me, I believe he was genuinely a very, very pious person. I think he borders on puritanical sometimes. And I wonder whether that is affected by not only his experiences growing up, but also this scoliosis and feeling like he has to do more to be better just to get to the same level as everybody else. And I think when he, when, when he goes down to London and becomes king in 1483, one of the most striking things, if you think Richard III is an ambitious monster who wanted the throne for himself, one of the things that he does almost immediately after his coronation, within weeks, is he leaves London. He goes on this royal progress heads west, goes to see his brother's grave at Tewkesbury, George's grave, makes his way back up north, ends up in York where he has his son invested as Prince of Wales. And for me, that feels a bit like going home. Mm. If you think he wanted power and, and he did everything that he did in 1483, killed people, potentially murdered children, his nephews, to get this power, why would the first thing that you do be to leave London? and leave the seat of all of that power and prestige. I think it's because he he came in contact with that kind of white-hot politics of London and thought, do you know what? I don't like this. This isn't for me. I want to go home. I want to go back up north where I'm happy, where I know what's going on, where I, I'm in control. And, and 1483 must have felt like another one of those moments in his life, like 1459 and like 1460 and all of those times when he's out of control. He's not driving events. He's not in charge of what's going on. Unexpected things are happening, and I don't think he likes that. So I think if you think he's a monster who just wanted power, it's a really odd thing to do to immediately evacuate the capital city and go way back up north. If you believe that perhaps he didn't want power and was driven into it, you know, believing that it was the only thing that he could do or the right thing to do or whatever, whatever, or perhaps it was a series of, of mistakes that he made, if you want to believe that. It feels to me much more like going home. Like I've had, you know, I've had enough of this. I don't like the politics in London. It's not what I'm used to and it's not what I want to be around. Well, that's not a ruthlessly ambitious man who just wants power for himself because the last thing they would do is leave it. Is it does it smack of someone who's desperately trying to take back control? If like if he if he wants that, is this him just desperately looking around for a way to stop circumstances spiraling? Potentially, it is. So I mean, there, there's there's a psychological sort of profile of Richard that was done, which you know these things are always difficult at 500 years distance. Mm. But it talked about the experiences of his childhood would create this kind of fear of uncertainty. So he would mm. always want to to get back in control, and I think. Perhaps in 1483, you see some of that, particularly in the arrests of Woodville, uh, the Woodvilles of, of Earl Rivers, Richard Gray and people like that. The, the early arrests of those, the swift action against Hastings, I think is him desperately trying to stay in control of this messy situation. And I mean, 
it's worth saying that the, that the sources that talk about 1483 in the, the immediate aftermath of Edward IV's death say that there were armed men in the streets of London, half of them for the Woodville faction, half of them for Lord Hastings' faction, on the verge of open warfare, and Hastings was threatening to go to Calais and barricade himself in there if the Woodvilles were allowed to remain in power. And all of this is before Richard has ever left the north. So Richard is often seen as coming down south and causing problems, but those problems were already there. He was coming down to try and sort those problems out. I kind of suspect that if Edward IV had thought the price of getting his son crowned safely was for Anthony Woodville and William Hastings to lose their heads, I feel like Edward IV would have been okay with that. But obviously, we we know it goes a little bit further than that, but that's, <laughs> that's kind of looking at the whole thing with hindsight. Mm. Um, having said that, I, I don't necessarily think that that makes Richard the kind of man whose first response to a crisis is to murder some small children. <laughs> I just don't see that anywhere else. There is no example before 1483 of him being involved in murders, anything like that. There's no kind of black mark on his character of that nature. I could quite happily argue that uh, Rivers and Gray were legally executed, that Hastings had a form of trial and was legally executed. People will argue against me and that's absolutely fine. But there is nowhere else in Richard's life in the previous 30 years that you will ever see him do anything like illegal murdering, particularly of children. So to believe that he did that in 1483 requires you to believe that his personality absolutely flipped, radically altered for a period of some months in 1483 and then switch back again. And I, I just don't buy that. Mm. I suppose the it's it's not in a way in his character or rather in his actions, but I suppose in terms of his experiences, I guess the thing which you might bring, which you're talking about the Wars of the Roses and how that shaped him. Like you said, he saw his father, well, he didn't see, but his father and uh, one of his older brothers is killed. Obviously he saw Edward IV lose the throne and then when Edward IV gets it back, um, there's... Battle of Tewkesbury, the death of um, Henry the Sixth son, Prince Edward, death of Henry the Sixth, um, Edward the Fourth, sort of dragging uh, the Duke of Somerset and various people out of the Abbey and having them all killed. So at the very least, Richard does see that you know even his very jovial, charismatic older brother, when pushed into that corner, does go choppy choppy. Yeah, and I think I think what Richard may well have taken from that is a lesson that decisive action is what works because all of the times when Edward IV fails are the moments when he can't be bothered to get off his backside and do a bit of work. Mm-hmm. When he's forced into a corner and he acts, you know, the, the whole return in 1471 to, to retake the throne from Henry VI again, they, they sail off into a storm, the storm that's keeping Margaret of Anjou and the Lancastrian Prince of Wales in port at Calais. Edward says, no, stuff it we're going to sail into this and we're going to deal with the consequences. You know, they get blown all the way up the, the east coast of England to Yorkshire. And I think then you you look at the battles of Barnet and Tewkesbury and it's when Edward takes decisive action that he wins. Mm. So if Richard is looking for a lesson from his brother's behaviour, it's actually, and to some extent, his father's mm. behaviour. His dad was was very similar to this. York was really slow to act on quite a number of occasions. So Richard would have taken from that that, that decisive quick action is what you need to win. So then his arrests of Rivers and Gray and Vaughan and people like that and his dealing with Hastings can be seen in that kind of context of it's about just trying to put a lid on all of this straight away, not letting it get out of hand, not letting it run away with anything and kind of you know snuffing it out as quickly as you possibly can. 
But again, I would draw a distinction between that, between executing politically active men and killing two small children that are in your care. But and you, as you say, they did at least have some form of trial, even if it was a kangaroo court. I think, which is we, you know, yeah. So we we would definitely recognise what happened as inequitable and unjust, and not the kind of due process of law that we would expect. But the short version of this is: Richard is appointed Constable of England, um, and he's held this office for for the best part of fourteen years. By the time he becomes king, so he knows. This, this post inside out. So when he arrives in London as Duke of Gloucester, he also arrives as, he's being lined up to become protector, but he arrives as constable of England as well. And the constable is responsible for the military security of the country. And what Edward IV has, has done in these powers of the constable, which he gave to um, the, the first Earl Rivers and then to John Tiptoff, the Earl of Worcester, before Richard had them, Edward wrote in rules that said it's the constable's job to deal with cases of treason and you can deal with that by summoning a court-martial based on evidence that you've seen. You can act as judge, jury, pass sentence of execution and there is no right of appeal. I mean, horrendously inequitable, but this is a product of the Wars of the Roses when Edward IV wanted treason dealt with quickly. So Richard's held these powers for 14 years and would know them inside out. So... When he arrests Hastings and has him executed, that's based on the fact that that Hastings is accused of treason and that some evidence is shown to Richard. You get the story of him leaving the the room and coming back and then proclaiming treason. And and the, the sources also importantly talk about the fact that this evidence was then shown in the streets of London and accepted by the people. You know, there's no mass rioting about the fact that Hastings is done away with. So that would involve then on the 13th of June, 1483, what happens is Richard is shown evidence of Hastings' treason, and that may well be to do with colluding with the French, and it may well have come from William Catesby, who was a lawyer who worked for Hastings and then goes into the service of Richard afterwards. Richard is shown this evidence, accuses Hastings of treason, effectively summons a court-martial immediately, sentences Hastings to death. He has no no right of appeal, and is taken outside and executed. And that is, in 1483, that is legal due process in that situation. And we can apply the same kind of thinking to uh, Anthony Woodville and Richard Gray in the north. So they're sent off to, to separate castles around Yorkshire, brought together at Pontefract. Why are they brought together? You could kill them wherever they were. They're brought together. Rouse, John Rouse tells us that he could have appointed the Earl of Northumberland as a deputy constable for the purposes of trying Anthony Woodville and Richard Gray. So again, legal due process. We we might think that's not what we would expect from the, the legal system today, but in 1483, it was well within the powers of the Constable of England, well within the powers that Richard held at that time. I guess what the uh, the comeback would be, I suppose, that it's one of those where it's technically legal, but still can see it would like similar, I guess, with like Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, that Anne Boleyn was lawfully executed, but I think many people would probably feel like it wasn't the I guess, quote, right. Yeah, and, and I think you can definitely still have a conversation about the, the moral correctness of what Richard did in those cases. But lots of it often hangs on the, the legal basis of it and the fact that Richard is running around killing people without giving them a trial, which mm. I don't mm. think is true. He is yeah, giving he d- them a he trial. Does stop, he does stop for the due process. 
before. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, might, it might be for one second while he says, <laughs> I'm constable, this is a court-martial, you're going to be executed. But Read them that's rights, legal due process. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, at least... Yeah, it's weird to say, but at least they got that. And it's part of this acting decisively thing. It does go... I mean, that if we accept that, it does tally. Right. Graham, you're probably saving this to last. But then, what did happen to those kids? <laughs> Nobody knows. That's the boring answer. No, <laughs> that, I, 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 yeah. I have my theories. I have my yeah. theories and I will happily share my theories. I don't ever claim to know what happened to them because nobody does. Yeah. So I think if you can accept that Richard III isn't this terrible, horrible monster who will resort to killing children, the, the sons of the brother who he loved, I mean, I think, I talk about it in a bit in the book, so I think Edward IV becomes something like a father figure to Richard. And for all Richard criticises him, this is why he sticks with him in 1471, at the re-adeption and, and times like that. I don't see Richard as the sort of person whose first response to a crisis is to murder the young children of the brother who he loved. So, especially without ever having tried anything else first, I think his first step has to be to deal with these children. So we have we have a, an a almost contemporary example. So 80 years earlier, when... Richard II is kicked off the throne by Henry IV. Henry IV isn't considered to be Richard II's legitimate heir by most people. That position belonged until 1398 when he died to Roger Mortimer, the fourth Earl of March. Well, he leaves behind him two small children, both under 10, two sons under 10. And then obviously not in a position to, to press their claim. But most people think they have a better claim to the throne than Henry IV does. So Henry IV takes him into a loose custody initially, they're abducted by a member of the House of York, actually, Constance of York, with the idea of putting the oldest of them, Edmund, on the throne in place of Henry IV. They're very quickly recaptured, and then they're popped into a slightly more secure prison, so people are less clear where they are, they're kept much more closely, they're put in the household, eventually, of Prince Hal, so the future Henry V. One of the first things Henry V does when he becomes king is to release Edmund and Roger Mortimer, Edmund becomes 5th Earl of March, becomes one of the wealthiest man, men in the land, um, and is the uncle to Richard, Duke of York. So the Mortimer inheritance then passes into the York family, which is a, a big part of the reason why the York family are, are viewed with suspicion in the Wars of the Roses. It's a whole different story. Um, but Richard would have been aware of this. This is his family history. So there you have a template for what do you do if you're on the throne? There are two young boys who some people think might have a better claim than you do. How do you deal with that? There's a template right there in Richard's family history. Two generations earlier, it was done. You Maybe you cut out the bit where they're in loose custody and everybody knows where they are so that they can be abducted, and you move straight to, to secreting them, hiding them somewhere, and keeping them safe. So if I'm pushed for what I think happened, I think um, the younger of the princes in the tower, Richard, Duke of York, is sent over to Burgundy, to Richard's sister, Margaret. Perhaps that's why James Tyrrell takes all of that money over there. Um, that's why Perkin Warbeck emerges from this particular part of the world, because I think there's every chance that he was the real Richard, Duke of York. Um, and again, separating the boys, you know, they were brought up completely separate from each other. So there's no 
no trauma or upset for them in separating them. I think Edward V goes north, so goes up to the the household of the Council of the North. We have records up there that talk about the children being served at breakfast at, at a time when there were no known children there. So it could have been done in preparation for the arrival of Elizabeth of York goes up there and Edward Earl of Warwick goes up there eventually. But was Edward V put up there? This is a region where Richard has been in control for more than a dozen years, full of castles stocked with men who he trusts and he knows and he can rely on to keep the whereabouts of this potential King of England secret. Um, We have Nicholas von Popelau talks about, in a really cryptic way, what might be one of the princes being at Pontefract Castle when he's there. It's, It's frustratingly not clear enough what he's talking about, but it could be that one of the princes at Pontefract Castle in the north. Because then I think... When Richard loses at Bosworth, you get this mad dash by Henry Tudor up to to Midland, to the north. He definitely wants to retrieve uh, Elizabeth of York, who he's going to have to marry, and Edward Earl of Warwick, George Duke of Clarence's son. But the, the, the rush may well have been about the fact that Edward V could have been there as well. And Henry may or may not have known what had happened to the princes in the tower at this point. So then I think because you get this situation where Henry himself goes up there, Francis Lovell follows him up and tries to assassinate him. You know, is this about getting to one of the princes in the tower first? I think then Edward goes the the easiest, quickest, safest route from the north of England for a Yorkist is to Ireland. Ireland has always been sympathetic to the House of York. And then I think that's where you get the Lambert Simnel uprising in 1487 coming out of Ireland. So traditional history will tell us that this uprising was in favour of Edward, Earl of Warwick. I think it was an uprising in favour of Edward V. There is some source material that explicitly states this, all the way into the reign of Henry VIII. There's documentation that talks about the Lambert Simnel uprising being in favour of a son of Edward IV. Why 1487? Well, at this point, Edward V would have been 16 and a half years old, so the same age as the Black Prince at the Battle of Cressy, the same age as the future Henry V at the Battle of Shrewsbury when he gets that arrow in the face. And just a year younger than his dad when he started his military career in the Wars of the Roses. So a good age for the son of the most successful warrior king in living memory to begin his own military career to take the throne. Because if you don't believe that these people were following a 16 and a half year old boy into battle, then you have to believe what the parliament rolls tell us that they were following a 10 year old boy on the battlefield into battle, which doesn't make any sense, I don't think. And I mean, there's lots of other stuff around the Lambert similar affair. So there's a, a guy called John de la Pole, who is Richard III and Edward IV's nephew. He's the oldest living adult mem- male member of the House of York in 1487. He has a perfectly legitimate Yorkist claim to the throne of England, and his brothers will later go on to be called the White Roses and to bother Henry VII and Henry VIII. He sets aside his perfectly legitimate claim and nobody doubts who he is you know we're told this this Lambert Simnel was this fake boy from Oxford who was plucked up and taught to impersonate the Earl of Warwick John de la Pole sets aside his own perfectly legitimate claim and no one wants to follow him because they all want to follow this boy in Ireland what would make John de la Pole set aside that claim what would stop people thinking why are we following this boy who's pretending to be a prisoner so that we can put a child on the throne when we've actually got this grown man here who would be a perfectly good candidate. But in 1487, the only people with a better Yorkist claim to the throne than John de la Pole 
are the princes in the tower, if they're still alive, Edward V and Richard, Duke of York. The only people I think he would set aside his own claim for is for one of them. So I think the Lambert Simnel affair is about Edward V. I think Perkin Warbeck is potentially the real Richard, Duke of York. Um, so the Lambert Simnel, who was captured at the Battle of Stoke Field, I think is a fake, a diversion. He is just a boy who's used to cover up what happened. And then I don't know what would have happened to Edward V. He could have been killed at Stoke Field. He could have been captured there and, and hidden away uh, or executed afterwards. He could have escaped the battlefield. We have one source, Adrian de Brut, who talks about one of the brothers of John de la Pole taking the leader of the, the army from Stoke Field across the sea to Calais and off into the continent. So there's lots of uncertainty about what went on during all of that. So that's my that's my short answer, if you believe it or not. <laughs> that's my really short answer to the Princes in the Tower. Whoa. You're going to have to take the reins, Graham. <laughs> well, I'll, t- I'll take the reins, but with a sort of, kind of within your... Um, within your mindset, Ali, that I think particularly after we did our Scottish series where for the at least the first half of that series, almost every episode ended with the next king killing the present incumbent, who's incredibly violent uh, period for medieval Scotland. And I think it sort of inured Ali to violence because from that point on, any kind of scenario where you get a rival to the throne or something like that, Ali's solution would always just be, well, just kill them. You know, <laughs> shrug, kill them. That's yeah. what we do now. So with... Yeah. With Richard and the princes, I guess the sort of accepting that he's not a monster, but it seems such a risk, particularly when you have that rebellion in 1483 with Buckingham and Henry Tudor, etc. It seems such a risk to have the princes and to not dispose of them in some yeah, way. Absolutely. I, I would never discount the possibility that Richard killed them. Hmm. And that might be because he was a cruel monster. I don't think he was. It might be because he didn't see any alternative. This was the the best and only way to deliver peace for England. And maybe he justified the means with the end that he had in mind. But I just don't think he wouldn't have tried something else first. He would, that The reason the princes in the tower stick out so much is because even amidst all of this killing of rivals, even in Richard's own lifetime where we've had Henry VI murdered, even if, you know, Richard II probably murdered by Henry IV, maybe starved to death... Edward II, you know, I actually quite like the idea that Edward II wasn't murdered at Barclay Castle and survived. Maybe I just like conspiracy theories about people surviving, I don't know. <laughs> the reason the princes in the tower stick out is because it's children. This isn't just another rival. You know, Henry VI is put to death at the age of, was he 50? Having been a useless king for the best part of 40-odd years and then plonked back on the throne again. He's a politically active man who needs to be disposed of it's very very different to two children edward v had been proclaimed a king but he'd never been crowned he'd never been given that solemn position of being an indisputable king Mm. so he's not the same thing as edward ii richard ii or even henry vi yes political rivals were murdered during the wars of the roses or politically executed or you know judicially murdered however you want to Mm. to phrase it but the reason the princes in the tower stand out is because it's children, and that was different. It was very, very different. There is no other case where you will find someone murdering children like that, and I don't think it happened in this case. It was so far beyond the bounds of acceptable behaviour in the 15th century, I just don't think anyone would have done it. I mean, look at what Henry VII does with Edward, Earl of Warwick. He imprisons him for 15 years, 
Henry VII, you know, concocts this notion that um, Perkin Warbeck and the Earl of Warwick were planning to escape from the Tower of London, probably a setup, an excuse to to get rid of them. Richard could have done the same thing. You know, why do we allow that Henry VII didn't murder Warwick when he was a child, but we won't allow Richard III the same kind of leeway or understanding? It's because we don't know what happened to the princes in the Tower, but that doesn't mean they were dead. Hmm. Yeah, you get um, kids used as hostages uh, because they know it's so... It, it means the other person won't do what it is they're worried will do. So it's sort of... It is beyond the pale as an idea, even then. God. <laughs> I guess it's the run of events, isn't it, I guess, in 1483? So much happens in such a short space of time that maybe separating out the fact that they're children, it somehow it, it feels almost like a logical flow. Like you said, the Stony Stratford where he takes possession of Edward and arrests Anthony Woodfull... Elizabeth of Wood, Elizabeth Woodville fleeing into sanctuary, bringing um, her second son out of sanctuary. The marriage illegitimacy, which is discovered, some people might think conveniently. A lot happens in a short space of time. I guess maybe that's why a lot of people feel like it doesn't seem such a leap. Somehow, you almost forget yeah, that their children. I, I think, I well, think it, it feels like a logical flow of events. Yeah, there is there is a reading of fourteen eighty three that sees Richard kind of bumbling through it, making ever bigger gestures that turn out to be mistakes and backing himself into a corner where the only way he can protect himself is to take the throne Mm. and make himself king. There's definitely a reading of those events. Like I've said at the start, you know, the source material is so difficult to to wrangle that you can definitely read 1483 like that without any kind of issue. Um, But I just don't see Richard III as the kind of panicky, lurching through decisions kind of person. I, I just don't see that in him. And I think to view that whole collection of events like that is to view it, again, with hindsight as one Mm. thing that was always destined to fall out that way. I think you have to, for my money, you have to separate out the bits where Richard is trying to get his nephew crowned. And I think there are, there's a distinct element where he's working to get Edward V crowned and people like Hastings and Rivers and Elizabeth Woodville are blockages to get that done. So when Richard before he leaves the North and when he arrives in London, the first thing he does in both places is cause people to swear oaths of allegiance to Edward V. Now, if you're planning to take the throne, you don't cause people to swear oaths of allegiance, religiously binding um, oaths to somebody else. Part of the reason that people had refused to depose Henry VI in favour of of Richard, Duke of York, in uh, 1460 with the Act of Accord was that people said, but we've sworn endless numbers of oaths of allegiance to this man and we can't just ignore that or overwrite that. So if Richard wanted to take the throne, there is no way he would have been causing people to swear these oaths of allegiance to Edward V. I think you can definitely see a discrete section of what happens as Richard doing his best to have his nephew crowned king. Then the the pre-contract stuff, the bigamy stuff comes along. Lots of people do say, you know, incredibly convenient for Richard because it makes him king. I would argue incredibly inconvenient because he's just been, you know, they're minting coin for Edward V. He's organising a coronation for Edward V. He's extracted oaths of allegiance to Edward V. This is a massive spanner in the works. Um, In terms of the timing, people will say, you know, again, convenient timing for Richard. I would argue that if Edward IV had been bigamously married to someone else, or or at least there was some evidence or a story floating around of this, 
when when could that possibly have come out while Edward the Fourth was alive? Which one of us is going to go to Edward the Fourth, the six foot four, undefeated warrior king of England, and say, <laughs> "By the way, I know you're a bigamist, and your children can't legally inherit the throne." Who fancies that trip? I don't. Um, part of the attainder against George Duke of Clarence in Parliament when he's you know Edward prosecutes his own brother for treason and has him executed. Part of the charge against him is that George is threatening the positions of the Queen and the King's children. Obviously, Edward could never openly say this was to do with a bigamy charge, but we do know that Robert Stillington, the Bishop of Bath and Wells, so this is the man that Philippe de Comines, one of the, the chroniclers, tells us, brings the pre-contract story, the bigamy story, to Richard. At the same time that George Duke of Clarence is arrested, Robert Stillington, the Bishop of Bath and Wells, is also arrested and thrown in the tower. And he's close to George Duke of Clarence at this point. So the fact that he's arrested then, is released, reappears in 1483. I wonder whether Clarence is basically executed because he's threatening to bring out this bigamy story, which would make Clarence king at the time, or at least heir to Edward's throne. Stillington re-emerges in 1483 and tells the story to Richard, for whatever reason. And we also know that after the Battle of Bosworth, one of the first things that Henry VII does is arrest Robert Stillington, the Bishop of Bath and Wells, and put him in the tower. This man must know something. I don't think that the timing is convenient for Richard. I think that Edward IV's death is the earliest point at which this story could come out without someone fearing that they're going to be killed for it. Because if Edward has killed his own brother for it, then he's not going to spare anybody else. I wonder whether, you know, Robert Stillington, he's an elderly man by 1483. Perhaps he's, because he's, we're told the story goes that he conducted this marriage ceremony between Edward IV uh, and a woman called Eleanor Talbot, who was the daughter of the Earl of Shrewsbury, uh, who later becomes Eleanor Butler through marriage. If if Robert Stillington is an elderly man who's thinking, you know, Yes, I know this this thing about illegitimacy, but I'll be dead before Edward the Fourth. You know, Edward the Fourth's only forty when he dies. No one expects him to die yet. You know, I'm not going to have to ever deal with this problem. But as soon as Edward the Fourth dies, and the preparations are being made to crown this boy that Robert Stillington knows is illegitimate and can't legally, under canon law or the law of the land, rightfully inherit the throne, would he feel compelled to come forward? Edward's not going to kill him now because Edward's gone. After the, all of his experiences in 1477 and 1478 alongside George Duke of Clarence, he must have been pretty scared if that's what it was about. Does it require Edward oh. IV's death for someone to come forward and say, actually, I know this secret, which would have been, I think, a massive spanner in the works to Richard, undone everything that he's planned and just created a whole new crisis for him. Mm. God. Could he not just have said, ah... It's fine. We'll just cover it up. Or, theoretically, you know. theoretically, yes. But I would again go back to the idea that I think Richard was slightly puritanical in some of his religious views. I mean, again, we can talk about his time in the North, his foundation at Midland College and all of that sort of stuff. We have examples of his piety and the, the kind of strict religiosity that he believed in. Um, I don't think any of us would have wanted to have worked in his college at Midland. You weren't allowed to go out partying. You weren't allowed to go to the pub. You weren't allowed to misbehave. You weren't allowed a day off, anything. Um <laughs> If a bishop turned up to him and said, this boy can't be king, would he really feel like, I'm not going to do anything about this? Do we go back to that thing that he needs to be whiter than white with God? 
mm. because of his scoliosis and all of the things that he thinks that says about him. Is he going to take the risk of doing something that is against the church's law and the law of the land just for an easy life? Mm. Maybe. Maybe, <laughs> I don't know. Because the interesting thing with that, and I guess this is moving us into Edward IV or Richard III, but I guess it's obviously if it was true, Edward IV would have known that this was an issue. But um, his son, so Edward V, was born after um, Eleanor Talbot or Butler died. So he could have done something about it if he'd known that technically he'd been bigamous. He could have sort of got his marriage validated and not affected the legitimacy of his son so if it was yeah. true why would you think it was just that he just couldn't acknowledge it at all and didn't think he'd ever need yeah. to worry about it? i think it, i think it's tricky because if at some point edward had come out and said oh by the way i mean because the, the thing is we're assuming okay edward the fourth when he comes to the throne is what is he 18 strapping young bloke single bit of a party prince very much enjoying life would he accidentally illegally secretly marry a woman to get her into bed well yes he would because that's how he ends up married to elizabeth woodville oh yeah <laughs> do we think there's a possibility he did that twice to get another woman into bed maybe did he do it more than twice how many or more women were out there if he acknowledged the fact that he committed bigamy would there be other women that came forward and say yep me too <laughs> i married the king as well i had this ceremony with the king and me and me how many times is he going to have to get his marriage to elizabeth woodville kind of legitimised and this this kind of stain taken off? Or is it easier just to never admit? That, in, in the knowledge that these women would probably never come forward because it would be the ruination of their reputation. Mm -mm. Um, mm. So that, that Edward could afford to hide behind that and assume that no one would ever come forward. And if he's dealt with George, who potentially knew, and if he's extracted some kind of oath from the Bishop of Bath and Wells at the same time that he wouldn't tell anybody, again, if that's what this was all about... Mm he potentially felt like he was safe and he just didn't need to raise the matter and have any bother because nobody else knew. Mm. But he absolutely could have dealt with it. And we get into really kind of murky questions of canon law that I, I tried to go into in the book a little bit, but it, it's, it's really unclear exactly what the legal situation is. There is an argument that says it was for a canon court to decide whether the boys were illegitimate or not, and it never gets sent to a canon court. But what's legally done is they introduce this, this idea of notoriety that everybody knows uh, Edward IV was a bit of a player and probably married more than two women and was a, almost definitely a bigamist. And once you introduce notoriety, what you would have been doing in 1483 is pushing the burden of proof back on the accused. So we're still in this realm of, if you know, the burden of proof can move. It's not always that you're innocent until proven guilty. If you introduce notoriety, you then become guilty because everybody knows it mm. and it's for you to prove yeah. your innocence and obviously two young boys aren't in a position to prove their innocence mm. yeah it's like richard with the princess in a way he's sort of there's no proof that he's innocent and so much now is assumed that he's the most likely most likely outcome is richard killed the princess therefore if you can't prove that he didn't it's sort of almost taken to be proof that he did yeah and and i would say i mean you cannot we can talk about the the duke of buckingham being involved and other people um I would say that if the princes in the tower died in 1483, Richard is probably the prime suspect. He has to be. I just don't think they did die mm. at that point. I think they lived into the reign of Henry VII and caused threats to, to, 
to the Tudor throne. I think Richard had a plan to sort of look after the boys or perhaps to deal with them later when they were adults if he wanted to do away with them. But I think they survived the reign of Richard III. I don't think they died in 1483 at all. So Henry VII then, I guess the, the big thing for Richard is he in some ways seems like he should be ideally placed because once he's got over all of those problems in 1483, you know, he has this very impressive record uh, in the north. He's very... Uh, capable and successful military leader as well. And, you know, with everything that's gone on, he is unquestionably the most legitimate person to be on the throne. How does he come to lose it to Henry Tudor, who is quite far from all those things? Yeah, so Henry Tudor is kind of this last bastion of resistance to to Yorkist rule. Edward IV has been trying to get his hands on Henry Tudor for years and has, has not quite managed to do it. I think Henry Tudor's cause kind of changes in 1483 because we know that in early 1483 his mother Margaret Beaufort has negotiated this pardon with Edward IV that would allow Henry to return home and potentially marry one of Edward's daughters, maybe Elizabeth of York. I would question if I was Henry whether I would trust that. I mean Edward IV was one for bumping off his rivals. You think of the Duke of Exeter who accidentally fell overboard on a return voyage from France. Um, and Henry always seemed to have a really good eye for danger uh, and be able to escape these kind of things in a, a very Hollywood action film kind of way. So I'm not sure he would ever have believed that. But I think Margaret Beaufort wants her son home after all of these years in exile. And I think when Edward IV dies and this pardon is unsigned, whether then Edward V becomes king and is a minor or Richard III becomes king, a regime change is not the time to be bringing home exiles who may be a threat to your crown. So we know Margaret Beaufort has a meeting with Richard just before the coronation, and it it must have been to talk about Henry Tudor and this pardon. And I suspect that Richard said, look, you're just going to have to wait. And I think at this point, Margaret Beaufort snaps because she thinks I've waited long enough. (laughs) He's been in exile for 12 years by 1483. I've waited long enough. And I think that's when she moves into kind of open rebellion against Richard. I think the October 1483 stuff... The rebellions then is about putting the Duke of Buckingham on the throne rather than Henry Tudor, uh, just as a way to get Henry Tudor home. And it's only after Buckingham's death that we start getting Henry talked about as a potential king in his own right. And I think then all of those disaffected kind of shire gentry and knights that I spoke about earlier, not liking Richard's new policies, make their way to, to Henry Tudor and we get this sort of faux court in exile initially in Brittany. We have to remember, I think, that France were about to to reignite the Hundred Years' War when Edward IV dies and then their own king, Louis XI, dies. And when Louis XI dies, he leaves behind a 12-year-old son to rule as Charles VIII. So that France has got its own minority crisis going on. <clears throat> Henry Tudor is someone who has a much better blood claim to the French throne than he does to the English throne. So I think part of what the French are doing is keeping Richard occupied at home by sponsoring Henry Tudor when he eventually gets to France. But they're also trying to keep Henry's eye off the French throne because it's got its own problems going on. And he might be thinking, you know what, I've got a better claim to that. He's the the (laughs) grandson of Catherine de Valois, so great-grandson of Charles VI of France. It's got a better connection to the French throne than the English one. So there are lots of reasons why I think the French were backing Henry Tudor. There are lots of reasons why I think disaffected Yorkists were backing um, Henry Tudor at this point. 
but when he invades, you know, we get to the Battle of Bosworth, and I think if you were, were looking at Bosworth Field, you would have to think that Richard was the favourite mm. on that day. I'd argue that the numbers were actually pretty close when you take Stanley sort of out of the equation and not only out of it, but then swing in behind Henry. Potentially the numbers are either very even or Henry has a slight edge in the numbers at that point. But nevertheless, an incredibly unlikely victory. I think Richard must have felt pretty confident that he was going to win at, at Bosworth. I think that cavalry charge was all about this, you know, this is this this is God approving me as King of England. You know, the the outcome of a battle is God's will. So this is about me killing the last threat to my throne, the last um, you know, bastion of resistance, the last focus for everybody, and proving that I'm good enough for God again, that God wants me to be king. And obviously, we know Richard dies at that battle, so he doesn't get the outcome that he's expecting. But I think he would have been incredibly confident on that morning. Um, he has a pretty good military record, albeit that he hasn't really been involved in a battle since 1471, 12 years earlier. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, yeah, he's he's not abandoned by the nobility of the land. So dukes and earls turn out for him at Bosworth. Um, and most of those following Henry Tudor are either French mercenaries or this kind of shire knights and that, that kind of level of society. So Richard has lots of backing, but loses. And then his reputation is trampled into the mud of the battlefield afterwards because he's the end of his dynasty. He ends the Plantagenet dynasty. He has no legitimate children to follow him or to to carry on his cause, and he becomes a nice, easy target for for propaganda from that point onwards. So do you think potentially almost similar to his father, who's sort of um, quite a surprising death in battle, and there's a lot of speculation as to how he found himself being ambushed and whether he yeah, was sort of yeah. duped into somebody like, was it one of the Nevilles that he thought was on his side, but actually maybe wasn't? And is that just it yeah. for Richard? He thought he was in a strong position, but because of Stanley, actually he just got brought into a trap almost. I think so. I think there are a lot of really strong parallels between Richard III and his dad, Richard, Duke of York. So they're, they're both similarly, as you say, die unexpectedly in battle. But I think they're also both incredibly politically naive, they don't see the plots and schemes of other people. So a good example of that is, as before Wakefield, York, as you say, Baron Neville turns up and says, let me recruit men for you. Well, this is a part of the Neville family that hates the part that York is married into. But York says, yeah, go ahead. You know, if you're on my side, that's great. And the, the Calais garrison that had abandoned him at Ludlow at the Battle of Ludford Bridge, they turn up at Wakefield as well and say, we want to be back on your side. We're really sorry for what we did. And York goes, yeah, yeah, come on. That's brilliant. If you're all on my side now. As soon as he leaves Wakefield Castle, they all turn on him and kill him. And he just doesn't see that. And I think Richard is the same with Buckingham. Buckingham appears at Richard's side, propels him through the events of 1483 and is his kind of his right-hand man as he becomes king and becomes the second most powerful man in the country and then rebels against him. And Edward IV had completely excluded Buckingham for government for the whole of his reign because he clearly saw something in Buckingham that he didn't like or didn't trust or thought he was a bit too erratic or I don't know. But Richard just welcomes him in. And it's almost the same as his dad. You know, I'm here to be your friend. I'm on your side. And they don't question it. They just say, yep, great, let's go. Hmm. So do you think if he had been successful at Bosworth, and presumably then if that would have been it in terms of serious threats do you think he could have gone on to be a successful king or do you think that sort of 
naivety perhaps would have undone him in some other ways like was he maybe a better fit as the lord in the north thread with the fourth who's a bit more savvy and pragmatic but quite lazy and prepared to let richard do things do you think he was better suited to that than being king i think so i think it's as i said before that danger of taking stuff onto a national stage there is far more opportunity for opposition you're going to upset far more people if you pursue the policies that he did pursue i mean i think we would if if we if we set aside any argument about the princes in the tower for a moment we look at richard's legal history and what he does in parliament I think we can view that as incredibly worthy, forward-thinking, socially conscious in a way that no other king in that period ever is. So yes, potentially he could have been an incredibly good king that could have changed the face of, of medieval England. Also, for people like me who like to study Richard and talk about what a great king he could have been, we're always talking about maybe. Because what he also does is much like Henry V, he just doesn't live long enough to fail. I mean, he does fail. He fails at Bosworth. But if we're talking about what kind of king he could have been, he doesn't have that really long reign, which gives him time to fail mm. and for it all to fall over and for him to, you know, like Edward IV becomes obese and lazy and, and whatever else. There's, Richard doesn't have time to fail in those kinds of ways. So we can talk about the good things that he was doing and how far that might have gone. But I would also say that what he tries to do whilst I think it's incredibly worthy and positive, he does it in a really naive, heavy-handed kind of way that contributes massively to his own downfall. Again, that political naivety, he doesn't try and ease these things through. He opens Parliament in 1484 and says, right, I'm changing everything. (laughs) Which makes most of the people in power in England really, really nervous. Um, So I think... I think he had the potential to be a good king. I think for most kings, if you live long enough, you live long enough to fail. And he didn't do that. Mm. Um, But, you know, ultimately, it's hard to see him as a success as a king as he was. He he died in battle, lost the crown, ended the Plantagenet dynasty after 332 years. You know, it's a pretty poor Mm. point to end on. Um, So it's difficult to see him as a, as a, a successful king. But I think he had the potential to have done some absolutely incredible things, I think. That would have been amazing, wouldn't it? If, there, if we did have a king who, a generation before the tyranny, sorry, Graham, of Henry VIII, <laughs> has had his focus on supporting the little guy and, how, and, and obviously no uh, blumen split from Rome. I mean, where, how far does that go with your... I know it's a counterfactual, but like, as a king, what, do you, what would have his... What would have, achievement been for him do you think what would have been a good i think all of this legal reform um i mean what he does in parliament again just as a really quick example uh he changes the bail laws so there are lots of complaints that when you're arrested on suspicion of a crime all of your goods can be seized and you might be denied bail even though you weren't supposed to be so richard introduces laws that say you can't have your goods taken from you until you're found guilty because there are quite often cases apparently where people were being arrested, their goods were being seized, they were found innocent, but not given their stuff back. So Richard changed the law to say, you can't be, you can't have your goods seized until you're found guilty. And also yeah. he appointed judges to go round and make sure that everyone who was entitled to bail was getting it. And they were, they were empowered to find people who weren't giving bail where it should have been. There are all sorts of things like that that he does that are for the, for the little guy who is struggling mm. and who is being oppressed 
by the situation. It's quite a Robin Hoody kind of thing, if you mm. like. So we, we could have had uh, all of that. But we know also that Richard, after the death of his wife, Anne Neville, is negotiating a marriage into the Portuguese royal family to Joanna of Portugal. So he could have got married, had another son, been linked to the Portuguese throne, which is then key to sailing west along with Spain mm. and, and into the New World. England could potentially God. have been involved in the, the Americas and the New World far earlier than we were in partnership with, with Portugal. So rather than yeah. Henry VIII focusing on the relationship with Rome and the rest of Europe and fighting with Francis I, England could have been off actually in the West in the Americas a lot earlier than we were. Oh, my word. That's a brilliant point. Yeah, if we were suddenly... Because what's, what's that, 1490 and all that Columbus yeah so then, then Columbus is- goes and by the by 1494 you've got France and Portugal effectively partitioning the new world between them yeah. and divvying it up so if we were married into the Portuguese royal family and had an interest in that perhaps we get involved in that a little bit earlier we mm. get a chunk of the new world um which I I don't know it's difficult because all that means is we'd have been cruel to a whole bunch of people a lot sooner than we were cruel to a whole bunch of people yeah. but yeah, had a bit of the uh, would have had a bit of South America. The Victorians could have been proud of. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Big thing for us that we were definitely wrong about when we did our episode on Richard III all those years ago was that uh, I think I stated that his body was lost to history. Um, well, I suppose it was correct at the time, but it's obviously not the case now. And that incredible rediscovery uh, of his bones in Leicester, um, well, quite a few years ago now. How how did you know? Obviously, your interest in Richard III. How did you? feel on that news and then the fact that there was that curved spine etc what were your sort of feelings and emotions when that happened i mean i guess the first thing to say is that frighteningly that was 10 years ago this year 10 yeah that's an entire decade ago um i mean yeah so i think it demonstrates the power of ricardian research so you know this was a small group of people called the looking for richard project philippa langley john ashdown hill annette carson dave and wendy johnson believed that they could find the grave of Richard III. And everyone was telling them they couldn't, that you don't go, archaeologists don't go looking for a named individual in a spot. There was all these legends about his bones had been dug up and thrown in the river saw. But they did their research and believed that he was under that social services car park in Leicester where the Greyfriars Church was, and they were proven right. And I think that demonstrates the power of genuine thorough Ricardian research you know people don't understand I don't think the amount of research that Ricardians and the Richard III sites are involved in genuine archival proper full-on academic research there is a lot more we can learn about Richard III I think I I'd confess that I when they started the dig I didn't think they'd find him I think you know it's it's one of those needle in the haystack things isn't it you know we're going to dig a hole we're going to dig three small trenches in the middle of Leicester (laughs) and we're going to look for this guy's grave just doesn't mm. happen. Mm. So I was blown away when they found him. I mean, I actually went and visited the the open day when the trenches were open. And this was before they'd announced that they found Richard. So I was looking, uh, I actually got shown round by Philippa Langley. But, oh. you know, we looked in trenches and trench one, the first one they dug that Richard was in, I looked into it when it was open and they they kind of covered over where this skeleton was that they found, mm. not knowing that it was Richard at the time. Um, so, you know, I got to, to stare into a hole with a dead body in it. Gave me. <laughs> um, and again, I mean, the scoliosis, again, I think we had legitimately kind of set aside those ideas of, 
a raised shoulder, the whole Shakespearean thing. You know, Shakespeare has him with kyphosis, the forward curvature, and a withered arm and a limp. We know he didn't have a withered arm and a limp. Uh, we know that from the skeleton now. And he did have scoliosis, which is the, the sideways curvature of the spine. But I think, as I mentioned before, we kind of legitimately set that aside because the paintings had been demonstrated to have been overpainted, that the, the raised shoulder was added later than the rest of the portrait. And some on some of them, Richard's facial expression has been changed to make it more kind of pinched and serious and nasty looking. And and John Rouse was the only contemporary source that talked about this uneven shoulder, but he did it in the context of all of that two years in his mother's womb, full set of teeth, long fingernails. So I don't think it was unreasonable to kind of set that aside when you got, you know, Nicholas von Popelau gives us a an eyewitness description of Richard and talks about him being a couple of fingers taller than Nicholas was and, you know, thin arms and all of this, sort of, but doesn't mention anything about uneven shoulders. So yeah, that was that was definitely a shock and a surprise. Does it change my opinion of Richard? I mean, I guess to some extent it makes his military activities all the more impressive if this guy had the kind of scoliosis that made, you know, look at, at Dominic Smee who did that recreation who has mm. the same kind of degree of scoliosis that they measured in Richard's skeleton. And he says, you know, intense physical activity makes it hard to breathe because the the scoliosis pushes on your lungs and makes it hard to get deep long falls of air. So this is a guy who was incredibly active and, and successful on a battlefield, despite the fact that he could barely breathe probably <laughs> at some mm-hmm. points. Um, and I do think it plays into this idea of, of explaining his, his extreme piety sometimes that he had to worry about what scoliosis meant other people would think of him, but what did it make him think of himself? What did it make him think God thought of him? Did it impact mm. his desire to be better than anybody else so you know he had to be whiter than white to prove that he wasn't the monster that the body he was in would seem to suggest he might be yeah it's fascinating well matt thanks so much for speaking to us today that's been uh, really really interesting ali's mind has been blown at various uh, times over the last <laughs> or so oh, I, feel, I, I tell you what that was a tonic thanks so much matt i because i've been so ill i feel like boom i'm back it's, it's absolute pleasure, pleasure. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Like I say, I've, I've loved Rex Factor for years and years um, and it's been an absolute thrill to come and talk to you guys. And, and all I would say with Richard III, all I ever ask is that people just think about it a little bit more. I don't know whether I'm right or wrong about most of the things that I say, but I think there's lots of really interesting evidence to to look at and think about and not just kind of gloss over it as he was this cruel monster before the Tudors. Now let's get on to the Tudors because he's more interested <laughs> than the Tudors. <laughs> Brilliant. And um, just quickly, where if people want to find out more about you or your podcast or Richard Third Society, where, where can they go to get more information? Uh, I am on Twitter far more than I should be, at Matt Lewis <laughs> Author, uh, a Facebook page of the same name. Um, and... I uh, co-host a podcast for History Hit called Gone Medieval, which covers all things medieval. Um, So can be heard there waffling away at every opportunity about Richard III and the the Wars of the Roses, (laughs) as well as various other subjects. Um, But yeah, I'm always up for a chat about Richard III on Twitter if anyone wants to to tweet me about it. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much, Matt. Great having you on. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. So that was Matt Lewis. Blimey. Met various points where you just sort of made an expression and went quiet. <laughs> I did, yeah. I was, um, I could listen to him chat all day. That was, 
Every time I thought he had um, a really uh, good manner of um, explanation where as soon as I thought, ah, oh, yes, but what about his spoon? And it was covered. I'm like, oh, gosh, I'm with you. Tell me more. Tell me more. <laughs> yeah. It was absolutely brilliant. But um, jolly exciting as well. His early childhood stuff. I mean, I know you've told me that, but I've obviously forgotten it. Richard, and, this uh, is rather than, rather than Matt. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Matt seemed like he had a lovely childhood as well. <laughs> as well? No. Richard had a bad one. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if that's your kind of thing, then it was great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Poor fellow. <laughs> Yeah, so, uh, yeah, we really enjoyed that chat. I hope you did too. So you can let us know what you thought about all of that. Uh, get in touch with us on Twitter and Instagram, where we are at Rex Factor Pod. Uh, join in the discussion on the Rex Factor, pa- Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page or email us, rexfactorpodcast.hotmail.com. I really loved that, Graham. Mm. Really, really loved that. Let's get him on again. Well, you should, yeah. You have to think of something else to say at the, uh, say at the beginning. This week, the beginning? Matt Lewis. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Matt again. Second, again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, the, one of my favourite uh, uh, artists at the moment is a chap called Fred again. Fred so again. it's not unusual. <laughs> yeah. uh, if you would like to support the podcast, uh, you can leave a review and subscribe on whatever podcast provider you use. Or if you would like to hear more episodes of Rex Factor, you can donate monthly, join the Privy Council, and access uh, well over a hundred bonus episodes at www.patreon.com forward slash Rex Factor. And we have some new Privy Councillors to welcome to the fold. Ah, and this first one, I apologise. Even, even when we met this person and they explained how we should pronounce their name, I think we both still got it wrong. <laughs> so, Who is it? Well, uh, oh. Shoinen McCoy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that is tricky. I'll give you that one. That was a good effort. Apologies if it wasn't a good effort. Uh, and apologies for <laughs> still not having got it right. Uh, Rebecca Phillips, Rika Putanen, Mandalay 2, Anna Hjortkar, Megan Chaplin, Monica Sim, Laura Stewart, Lauren Jansen-Parks, Courtney Mendenhall, Linda Yancey, Kate Koo, Keith Gilmore, Kristen Wessel, Bill Walton, Rob Anthony, Kate Parkinson, Liotta Ladue-Berry, Anne Hinkle, Laura Coots, Melina Ricuti, Eamon O'Reilly, Dan Desler, Chris Tennant, and Laurel Rush. Well, thank you very much, one and all. You're all terrifically welcome. Uh, yeah, so that is all from us today. Hopefully you enjoyed the interview with uh, Matt Lewis. As uh, he said, you can follow him at Matt Lewis Author uh, on Twitter and his podcast, Gone Medieval. Gone Medieval. Um, otherwise, that's all from us today. Next time, we will be hearing more about the Beaufort family when we speak to the uh, historian Nathan Eamon. Bye. <laughs> okay, yeah, bye. <laughs> yeah, no more waffle, just... <laughs> <laughs> Cheerio.